2: Welcome to the Education Channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena from the Department of Communication, Journalism and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guest today is Bradford Vivian, the author of Campus Misinformation, The Real Threat to Free Speech in American Higher Education. Campus misinformation is an incisive examination of how pundits and politicians manufactured the campus free speech crisis and created a genuine challenge to academic freedom in the process. If we listen to the politicians and pundits, college campuses have become fiercely ideological spaces where students unthinkingly endorse a liberal orthodoxy and forcibly silence anyone who dares to disagree. Popular but highly misleading claims about a so-called free speech crisis and a lack of intellectual diversity on college campuses emerged in the mid-2010s and continued to shape public discourse about higher education across party lines. Such disingenuous claims impede constructive deliberation about higher learning while normalizing suspect ideas about First Amendment freedoms and democratic participation. Taking a nonpartisan approach, Bradford Vivian argues that reporting on campus culture has grossly exaggerated the importance and representativeness of a small number of isolated events, misleadingly advocated for an artificial parity between liberals and conservatives as true viewpoint diversity mischaracterized the use of trigger warnings and safe spaces and purposefully confused critique and protest with censorship and campus and cancel culture. Bradford Vivian is professor of communication arts and sciences and past director of the Center for Democratic Deliberation at Penn State University. His previous books include Commonplace Witnessing, Rhetorical Invention, Historical Remembrance and Public Culture, and Public Forgetting, The Rhetoric and Politics of Beginning Again, which received the Winans Wichelns Award for Distinguished Scholarship in Rhetoric and Public Address, awarded by the National Communication Association. Bradford Vivian, welcome to the new book's network. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yes. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Before we jump into the book, I wanted to offer my thanks for you taking on this topic. As someone who has worked in universities for over 30 years myself, I am regularly startled by the way that many people perceive what goes on in them. And your book offers at least the beginning of a cold splash of water on some of the more common misperceptions. So let me ask, what made you want to take on this subject? What led you to the study of campus misinformation?
1: Well, I appreciate you saying so. Thank you. And I do hope that the book is a constructive contribution to public discourse about college campuses and higher education um, for all open-minded people across many different spectrums. Um, In a sense, that's what made me want to take it on, noticing, particularly around 2017, 2018, into the early 2020s now, that. The quality of the most outstanding attention-getting public discourse about universities uh, is, I think, this is part of my core argument in the book, not just a threat to publicly funded higher education in the U.S., but it's a threat to democratic civil liberties as well. And what made me want to take on the topic, uh, in a sense, was two administrative roles I was holding in the late 2010s. Uh, on the one hand, in my home department at Penn State University, I was director of undergraduate studies at the time, and working with a lot of terrific students and working to shape curriculum and what we thought was uh, very high quality. Um, but also um, forward-thinking ways. And at the same time, I was director of the Center for Democratic Deliberation when there were many different warnings in the U.S. and abroad about democratic backsliding or the erosion of certain forms of democracy. And so the two together, sort of uh, deep care and interest in the quality of undergraduate education in a very large university system, as well as concerns over eroding democracy, I see the state of higher education as a key index of the quality of democracy in a society writ large. And so that if you have a lot of anti-university rhetoric, rhetoric against Um, broad-based liberal arts education and independent research universities, institutions free from political interference. That's a cause of concern not only for the state of higher education, but that's a feeder oftentimes for anti-democratic ideas and those that are hostile to civil liberties. And there's quite a lot of research from many fields that backs that up. That's not an opinion of mine. That's a pretty well-documented historical and uh, political pattern
2: yeah it, it's interesting to me that you said you were director of undergraduate studies and as you might imagine Oakland is you know primarily an undergraduate institution um, I, I, as I was reading your book, was thinking back to a moment that I had several years ago, and I've discussed this with my students in class. I was at a, a dinner at, uh, in Florida with my in-laws, and a neighbor stopped by and found out what I did for a living and, and, you know, made this comment and said, do you find that the young people that you are working with have a greater sense of entitlement um, than than they did, you know, 20, 30 years ago? And And... Nothing could be further from the truth in my experience, and, and it just led me to wonder where that perception was being generated from. Anyway, your, your book sort of begins a, 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 to answer that question. Um, in the first chapter, you begin sort of right in the belly of the beast. So talk to us a little bit about viewpoint diversity, and, and perhaps even more importantly, how did it become such a powerful talking point in the tax on higher education.
1: Indeed, the idea of viewpoint diversity uh, had a lot of public prominence starting in the period I was describing, 2016, 2017, and so forth. And I think it's, it's here to stay as a talking point. Um, the idea of viewpoint diversity, to me, is um, an attempted scientific I would say, in some ways, speciously scientific or pseudoscientific appeal that is um, a new version of a pretty old reactionary political premise about the state of higher education. From the late 40s and 50s forward, there's a whole political movement that's built on um, various kinds of mass media messaging about the supposedly radical, liberal state of college campuses in the U.S. And I think it's important that we look at where that um, argument came from. It came from primarily the era of desegregation, the idea that college campuses were too liberal, too radical, uh, socialist, communist, Marxist. These were all code words in a time when there was uh, a legal, institutional, constitutionally based effort to desegregate colleges and universities. And so that idea that I just think it's important to note as a historical fact, not as a made up polemical point, that this idea came out of an era when colleges and universities were anything but liberal in those specific senses. They were often reserved for socially and economically politically privileged, if not elite members of society. Um, They were very much, for the most part, barred to people of color, to women, uh, to other people in quote-unquote minority populations. And the doctrine of viewpoint diversity then, if if people are familiar with this general narrative from the 50s, 60s on into the 70s and 80s, the the target eventually became um, affirmative action programs, programs... and. I am all for, by the way, discussing the merits or uh, opening those programs up for all kinds of criticism on a case-by-case basis. Uh, But the idea in this time, sort of turn of the century period, was that these programs to affirmatively make um, for true intellectual diversity on college campuses, uh, where they would Uh, welcome based on, of course, uh, merit and qualifications, faculty and students from a number of different social, political, and economic perspectives to people of color, to women, to all religions, uh, and qualifying um, international students and so forth. That's what uh, the general impulse of affirmative action programs was all about. And viewpoint diversity, um, after the sort of late 20th century, early 21st century round of Supreme Court cases that legitimated some kinds of race-based, or considerations rather, of of race in admissions and in hiring. Um, Viewpoint diversity has emerged as a kind of repackaging, I think, of that general impulse. The idea, as I understand it, behind viewpoint diversity is to say, well, college and university campuses have now become diverse enough. Uh, And we don't need proactive programs to make sure that they treat students and faculty of many different backgrounds, uh, particularly concerning race and sex and gender equally. And so that we've had um, enough of that sort of viewpoint, uh, uh, enough of that diversity, and now it's actually become harmful. Um, I find that there's a big non sequitur at the middle of it, and this is open for debate, but my argument is that... um, it's a non sequitur to say, well, we have enough and now we need to actively restrict uh, or end those proactive measures. Viewpoint diversity, again, in my understanding, says, well, now we need to focus on balancing political viewpoints and those are, in many ways, as they get talked about according to this platform, stereotypical partisan political viewpoints, which I think are in many ways abstractions. So that the mantra is, well, now let's have a relatively equitable balance of liberal and conservative viewpoints on college campuses and not consider those prior proactive measures of making sure these institutions are fair and diverse and equal for all qualified applicants and faculty hires and so forth. And just as a coda to that viewpoint diversity then coming around to um, the theme of your question, it sounds great and it's got a lot of centrist appeal um, because it. The way it's pitched, it sounds like an opening up of qualifications to make the viewpoints, quote unquote, on college campuses more diverse. It's actually an argument for restricting or uh, consolidating or narrowing those things, no longer considering race and sex and gender and different socioeconomic backgrounds and uh, the idea of attracting certain kinds of international students and so forth. We're only going to focus on partisan political stereotypes as the primary sort of qualification of what counts of diversity. That's a reflection of, I think, um, punditry, the sort of idea that Equal time has to be given to conservative and liberal stereotypical viewpoints in mass media and so forth. That's the ingredients of kind of a culture war uh, mentality Uh, now coming to college campuses.
2: So one of the more common motifs that appear in the anti-higher education rhetorics that you talk about are the twin phenomena of trigger warnings and safe spaces. Uh, As a matter of fact, I think I just read the safe space idea in uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's Advocacy for a National Divorce. So where did these ideas come from and and how did they become such a powerful weapon um, that are being wielded by these anti-higher education advocates?
1: The tropes of safe spaces and trigger warnings are essential to the broad appeal of the viewpoint diversity movement and the even broader appeal of some extremist ideas that terrible things are now going on on college campuses. Um, In one of the early chapters of my book, I describe how crucial those ideas are. And Mileage may vary depending on what kind of faculty member or student you are and what institution you're at. But just speaking for me, um, I think I can count on one hand after 20 some years of teaching at several different institutions of higher education, the number of times, in any kind of informal way, let alone a formal way that somebody's brought up um, in a live conversation where I'm present, the idea of a safe space or a trigger warning. Uh, But there's a lot of rhetoric out there which suggests it's sort of all we talk about on college campuses and we're obsessive about it. Um, So the sort of narrative threads I try to put together is in 2014, uh, Oberlin um, the diversity and inclusion office there proposed that trigger warnings should be on all syllabi uh, at that university. Trigger warnings is an adopted practice from online spaces. You might enter a website and there could be um, potentially upsetting content there. And, uh, hey, trigger warning, you might find some stuff if you have uh, post-trauma kinds of issues as a internet user, you might want to avoid this and so forth. Um, Trigger warnings on syllabi, some professors and so forth have adopted them. Some diversity offices might recommend them like this one at Oberlin did. And trigger warnings are actually normally, as I understand it, I don't use them. Um, But on syllabi, they they are used to sort of signify, hey, prepare yourself for this difficult material, not to avoid it. Um, the castigation in the mass media about news that this diversity office proposed broad trigger warnings uh, was went far and wide. It showed up in all kinds of editorial pages, but also hyperpartisan online media, and this is a prime source of misinformation if if one understands, for better or worse, how a lot of college campuses operate. A particular office can propose a policy like that. But what actually happened at Oberlin is the faculty said, Whoa, that's too much. We don't want that kind of mandate. Let's table that proposal. The result was that there was no such mandate created. Uh, but once in the ether of hyperpartisan invective and online spaces and hyperpartisan Political circles: the idea that college students in general were afraid of material, and that they were easily emotionally, traumatically triggered by kinds of new information and viewpoints. Um, new information and viewpoints that still uh, is is very present as just a general assumption. And then the idea of safe spaces: yes, it's a it's a colloquialism used to refer, in particular, to the fact that there are certain. More vulnerable populations on large college campuses, oftentimes with young people living at home in potentially dangerous or risky situations, and so that there maybe for student affairs it'd be nice to have an office where they can come to feel like they can talk to somebody, get confidential advice or information, um, report a crime, report a potential assault. Um, there are national federal offices that keep records of these things and we can verify statistically how certain kinds of populations, uh, particularly uh, women and people of other gendered or sexual orientations are uh, more vulnerable to sexual assault on large university campuses or small ones. Um, But the idea then, you have these two tropes mixing together to suggest that college students are weak and coddled and easily triggered and desiring of a safe space. And just the general um, invective against the site in Particularly turbulent socio political times, college students getting out and, and protesting or advocating for certain ideas publicly, uh, it became irresistible in a lot of spaces to say, well, they don't, that means they don't like diverse viewpoints. That means they're easily triggered, irrational, overly emotional, uh, and they just desire safe spaces. Um, and I think. students are human beings, and so there's a lot of diversity of behaviors and ideas and so forth across the human spectrum, as well as what you would find in an undergraduate college campus. Some behaviors uh, might be worth criticism and recommending to do better. Some ideas and behaviors uh, might be worth a lot of praise, but we need to examine them on a case-by-case basis and not essentially scapegoat and stereotype and just use a bunch of derisive negative terms wrapping all college students into this kind of manufactured idea of the ills and and vices and flaws generation-wide that all university students allegedly share. Uh, That doesn't seem like a constructive fact-based way to talk about the state of higher education or or what the reality of, of being a student actually is these days.
2: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about this, uh, then the crisis, right? So if you would, I'd like you to, uh, read from a part of your book, cause I think you express this rather beautifully in this, um, particular paragraph, uh, on page 57 under in the chapter on declarations of emergency mm-hmm. The line, beginning with the conduct of a limited number.
1: Okay. Sure. The conduct of a limited number of students within a large campus population on one occasion at a single university, or even a small number of institutions may well deserve scrutiny and condemnation, as is true for irresponsible and disruptive members of various workplaces on any given day. The notion that such a single incident or a statistically small number of incidents in specific pockets of larger university communities, demonstrates a nationwide wave of fascism, is illogical and ahistorical. Beginning with this framework for debate over the state of US higher education does not indicate a meaningful evidence-based effort to understand the real world problems and complexities that affect some college campuses. It indicates a partially imagined fable meant to maintain popular cycles of outrage. Yet this unsubstantiated premise generated significant amounts of public attention for the pundits who energetically promoted it in 2017 and 2018, thereby extending the scope of campus misinformation into a semi-permanent fixture of political commentary.
2: So remind our listeners what we're, what we're talking about here, the, the handful of, of isolated incidents that uh, garnered such an outsized reaction.
1: Well, 2017-18, again in sociopolitical turbulent times, um, was an era of a very strong conscious push by extremist groups in order to have extremist speakers appear on college campuses and intentionally foment controversy. So two things can be true at once in these cases. According to, again, on a case-by-case basis, university policy, according to state and federal law, um, First Amendment freedoms do apply for even speakers who espouse bigotry and hate, Uh, but broad, justifications for free speech, um, however, can be fundamentally disingenuous and these um, efforts very consciously to try and get extremist speakers on campus, I would say were not genuine defenses of First Amendment rights because the content of the speech in these cases was by and large about describing certain human beings as unequal as some subhuman, as creating theatrical spaces to generate online content uh, where people were being derided again for being easily triggered and desiring safe spaces and demeaned. And so you have speakers who are invoking the cause of free speech in order to try and expand their public visibility to restrict the basic First Amendment rights political organization, academic freedom of thousands of university students and faculty. These were consciously designed um, events in order to manufacture incendiary content and take up a lot of oxygen and make universities look like chaotic, wild, contentious spaces. So all of this was invoking the broad idea of free speech in order to actually create pretexts or justifications For tighter state control over college campuses for stronger restrictions on academic freedom and first amendment expression for many different groups on college campuses Um, um, well and so at this time you had a lot of uh, again centrist people who had described themselves as centrists with these concerns over quote-unquote viewpoint diversity who in some ways were espousing sympathy with some of these extremist speakers on college campuses. The idea had taken root at this time that uh, undergraduate students were mostly very triggered and uh, desiring of safe spaces and didn't wanna hear outside speakers. It's important to remember in this context that all kinds of social and political groups advocate publicly and use their free speech even to protest on college campuses that is evidence of free speech. That is evidence of engagement. Um, That's not a a rejection of other speech. When done in a nonviolent manner, people can vigorously advocate for whatever ideas they want and engage in protest and it's called counter speech. Um, And so that's a sign of democracy at work. But this idea had taken root that because students were protesting extremist speakers on their campuses, who were intentionally trying to foment discord, uh, violence in some cases, that they were hostile to free speech. And so you had a lot of very selective reporting about these incidents. And two things I would point out. One is that in the majority of cases, for example, there's a famous incident Berkeley that gets talked about as if students and faculty at Berkeley rioted when an extremist speaker came a lot of these situations have been orchestrated so that there's a fair bit of online activity before among extremist groups. And so they intentionally target college campuses where a countering extremist group from outside the university is likely to show up or where they can likely antagonize people into some sort of physical response and so forth. So, um, First Amendment rights apply broadly to everybody, but I also don't think we have to just assume that those sorts of individuals uh, have um, a robust understanding of First Amendment freedoms or a desire to protect them broadly for all people. Um, and then secondly, the other thing important to remember, uh, violent responses... Uh, are are in no way an acceptable response to even controversial outside speakers. In many cases, these controversial speakers, uh, by and large, 99% of the time are on college campuses all the time, and they're hosted without incident. And it's important to remember that this was a manufactured, overweening focus on a relatively small, statistically speaking, number of anecdotes. As I try to say in the book, if you look at the number of free speech forums on college campuses, uh, classrooms, invited speakers across the socio-political spectrum all the time, uh, all kinds of different meetings and events and artistic programming and so forth, This is the reason why these sorts of groups want to create this negative uh, reputation of college campuses. It's because they are far from perfect and they're deeply flawed and many times they're hierarchical. But compared to the rest of society, as a class of institutions, colleges and universities uh, do a much better job of protecting First Amendment freedoms and welcoming many different types of speakers than you find uh, in other institutions.
0: So
2: one of the most important chapters of this book has to do with um, your analysis of pseudoscience. Um, I think there's some broad applications here, but tell us a little about how pseudoscience is employed to attack higher education.
1: Well, the viewpoint diversity perspective and a lot of the sort of punditry public intellectual talk surrounding it tries to ground itself in the uh, the ethos of science or scientific research or data analysis, statistical information. This is another reason why I say the platform of viewpoint diversity, which is designed to actually narrow what counts as a measure of intellectual diversity on college campuses, uh, is... um, a reinterpretation of a longstanding argument. So it doesn't seem to be partisan political uh, for many audiences of these messages if the idea of viewpoint diversity seems grounded in data. So there's a lot of reliance then on opinion polls and social scientific survey research and other forms of statistical information to sort of costume this idea that it's actually very much about advocating explicitly for a stereotypically partisan political viewpoint to say we need more of this to create uh, what I describe as an artificial balance. Um, In natural society, we don't find a sort of perfect, perfect one for one um, match the way we do on cultivate carefully cultivated um, TV shows, cable news, television, debates, and so forth. One person representing this side, one person representing that side. That's a manufactured television mass media construct. And so the idea of of science then comes in to say, well, we're not sort of consciously advocating for this viewpoint over this other one, because that would actually seem to be a form of favoritism itself. Um, But we're just appealing to science. And so um, a lot of these surveys I point out, uh, and this is not very exotic academic research. I'm traditionally a humanities person, but I try to give myself a very good um, background, um, functional background in the basics of survey research and you know stati- the language of statistical analysis. These survey questions are often written in order to create um, the kinds of answers that they desire. There are various techniques. Uh, And I try to cover some of those to sort of say, look at the language of these surveys and then look at how they're reported so that there can be problems with the surveys themselves where the wording of questions is sort of designed to essentially get you something like the results you want. And then there's the after-the-fact reporting, where, for example, you might have surveys that in many of the examples I analyze, on the one hand, they might just be a relative handful of students that are surveyed. And you get maybe just a little bit of a, a nudge over that 50% line in terms of the result. And then next thing you know, it gets picked up in the headline in the Washington Post and the New York Times in an op-ed ed column is all college students are hostile to you can't scientifically go from that individual survey of a small sample to that sort of broad pronouncement about all college students. And in many cases, some of these surveys, they are open source online, and you can't even verify if actually college students are taking them. So these are sort of Explicit examples and some of the leading ones of what I describe as kind of pseudoscience or scientifically suspect sort of arguments. Um, The last thing I'll mention too is, and this connects to your earlier question, it's become very popular to um, have online databases of speakers allegedly shut down, uh, quote unquote, canceled on college campuses or disinvited and so forth. Uh, Those are not scientific. Uh, exercises in data collection and analysis. They're collections oftentimes of anecdotes from student newspapers or second, third-hand reporting, online videos and reports and things of that nature. So um, taken out of context, it might look like you can draw some sort of statistical pattern, this uptick in disinvitations and so forth. Um, But it's really very random. And what happens is if just looking on the, at those databases online, uh, context drops out and one is, one can easily forget that different offices and institutions and so forth routinely invite and then disinvite and then rearrange schedules sort of all the time. So all this information is lumped in. It's not very uh, neat categorization and it's irresponsible from a scientific empirical perspective to try and make broad pronouncements about the um, psychology of faculty and students at nearly 5,000 institutions of higher learning in the U.S.
2: So a related idea, and you you brought up the idea of an anecdote already, is uh, the misuse of anecdotes in um, reporting on higher education. So tell us a little bit about mobs and shutdowns and, and how anecdotes related to these things shape our perceptions about university life.
1: Absolutely. So one thing to say is to, at the outset, be very candid, and I I say so in this book, there are some truly reprehensible incidents that take place on college campuses. Um, And some of the anecdotes uh, do reflect cases where there's legitimate cause for concern uh, about some students' behavior. Um, Moreover, in terms of a historical perspective, in turbulent socio-political times, times of very heightened division, college campuses, uh, u- public universities are no different from the rest of society. So there's a pattern where this happens in the 20s and 30s, uh, and then again in the 60s. Um, sometimes there are very unfortunate incidents that take place, but there are very unfortunate incidents that take place in heightened uh, times of conflict in public square uh around the country in all parts of society and if we want to appeal to firm statistics my understanding is that there are statistics that show um actually by and large colleges and universities are pretty um safe well-guarded spaces in in effect Um, so the kinds of anecdotes that got circulated however were consciously designed to be part of a relatively short, statistically tiny list, uh, names like Middlebury, Berkeley, and so forth. And this reflects uh, a predominant feature of campus misinformation that I try and address in the book, which is the very online nature of it. Um, This is a uh, a kind of platform where it's very easily to make certain tales about what happened at this college campus or that one go viral, where that becomes the story. And in these cases, we might be talking about very short snippets of video, um, second and third hand reports of this person did that, or this faculty member said this and so forth. And then you play a telephone game where that becomes something that maybe even people, weren't even aware of on that college campus was not a particularly worrisome incident. But it seems to be the only reality that people um, um, in online spaces understand about college campuses and then gets picked up, as happened in kind of the late 2010s, early 2000s in, say, New York Times op-ed pages. Where they're continually, you can look at these columns and they're always referring to a statistically tiny and now quite dated uh, number of incidents um, to say that these, all of this means that uh, undergraduate students are pathologically coddled as a generation. All faculty share particular sorts of views. All faculty are radical in these ways. Um, and again, I think it's we should always be um, honest and ready to criticize events that take place on college campuses that are against the mission of the university that um, are either intentionally sowing conflict or just responding to conflict in a way that escalates things. Um, all those actors should always be uh, criticized and held to account. But um, again, I revert to the idea that as a class of institutions, colleges and universities, uh, the dominant trend in recent decades in the, post, uh, the, in the post-segregation era or the era of what I would call continuing desegregation is that college campuses are more inclusive, better protective of academic freedoms and First Amendment freedoms um, than many other spaces in society, again, as a class of institutions.
2: So in Chapter 6, you introduce us to the idea of First Amendment hardball. Um, Mm -hmm. You describe this as a hinge in your overall argument. So tell us what you mean by First Amendment hardball and how it contributes to the skewing of our understanding of higher education.
1: So First Amendment hardball is um, uh, me cribbing from a term in political science uh, called constitutional hardball. Constitutional hardball is— a reference to something that can happen in democratic societies that creates democratic erosion or erosions of uh, constitutional rule of law where hyper-partisan political actors might say there's this policy or this freedom or right. Uh, procedural rule that's supposed to apply to everybody, but actually we're just going to uh, take it over now. And it's only going to apply to us and benefit us. And so it's it's a tool where technically things are allowed under a constitution, but it's a breakdown of norms where people use uh, constitution and rule of law in ways that erode broad protections for constitutional rights and rule of law. And so the extremist groups I've referred to have been very consciously Um, mainlining specious ideas about First Amendment freedoms. This is why it's important to distinguish whether somebody's referring to First Amendment rights and liberties, or whether they're sort of just broadly invoking, well, free speech means what I can do, I can do what I want and say whatever I want to say. Um, First Amendment hardball refers then to, say, this idea of, well, technically, yes, this kind of speech is allowed in certain places, But that doesn't mean then that we should be so um, ready to say, well, let that person speak because they are a protector, a defender of free speech, particularly, again, as I say, when the content of that speech is about curbing other people's rights. And so a lot of the controversy in your prior question, quote unquote, controversy over outside speakers, as I say in the book, was not about speakers who who by and large speak on Thousands of different academic subjects openly talked about on college campuses, thousands of them every day. By and large, it's content about how other human beings are fundamentally unequal, uh, oftentimes historically disenfranchised or persecuted groups. So First Amendment hardball, that is, is a way to sort of mainline the idea that it's okay to speak about people in that way, that it's merely just defending free speech to be uh, popularizing, dehumanizing language, which leads to treating people uh, in an unequal manner to restricting their rights and freedoms. So that's the sort of platform then, uh, the motivation to intentionally sow conflict in order to get that sort of speech in university classrooms on university campuses and be broadly validated by it, by a sympathetic public allegedly worried about, again, coddled students who are easily triggered and can't stand dissenting ideas. And the other facet of constitutional hardball that's very important to remember is that this is, um, this comes back to my earlier point that attacks against universities, historically speaking, presage attacks against civil liberties and rights of speech and open information in society writ large. So example, for example, in the state of Florida right now, it's, it's no surprise you've got a series of bills which are about restricting academic freedom in state university campuses and also restricting freedoms of the press, uh, online freedoms as well for people. This is a pattern that we've been seeing in recent years, too, popularized uh, in nations like Russia, Hungary, Poland, Brazil, where there's been significant democratic backsliding. and political actors and leaders with authoritarian tendencies have used the letter, the technical letter of their constitutions in order to consolidate power, shut down universities or just politically censor and monitor them while also restricting freedoms of the press. Uh, by and large is a historical fact pattern where you find um, popular support for authoritarian movements. You're gonna find anti-university rhetoric You're going to find the idea that those universities are hostile to, quote unquote, more traditional viewpoints, which oftentimes is code for more bigoted viewpoints. And you're going to find that together with movements to restrict the free press and other civil liberties.
2: The idea of First Amendment hardball, it seems to me, is strongly related to the theme of your penultimate chapter on the word orthodoxy. How is this word, which, as you point out, is not common in modern discourse, been used to attack universities? So
1: that is, in some ways, as I argue, the key term of a lot of the viewpoint diversity movement. But it's also been taken up, uh, broadly speaking, in in hyper-partisan circles to attack university campuses or as a pretext for restricting free speech and academic freedom uh, in in universities. the idea of the very word orthodoxy shows up in many bills, dozens of them um, throughout the country, particularly from 2020 forward, passed by hyperpartisan state legislatures, or at least being considered by them, um, that um, this idea that a liberal orthodoxy has overtaken college campuses or a critical race theory orthodoxy or an LGBTQ orthodoxy and so forth. Um, That word is now part of Viewpoint Diversity Circles and those who advocate for a quote unquote heterodox uh, position on um, the state of uh, open debate and and disagreement in colleges. Orthodoxy is a term also used in the early 2000s forward um, by some particularly powerful, influential, self-described conservative academics and commentators to describe the state of secular culture. Uh, This is a response at the time in the early to mid 2000s around the push for gay marriage and broader acceptance of LGBTQ rights. So you get a lot of writing at this time, and I try and provide um, good illustrative examples where a pattern starts to emerge. And the pattern is that, well, secular culture has taken over traditional American society. And we're sort of in an apocal battle against this new secular orthodoxy. Or sometimes it gets described as, again, the LGBTQ orthodoxy or the orthodoxy of, quote unquote, sexual minorities or sexual deviance. Again, their language, not mine. Uh, this is not even a broadly conservative Christian viewpoint. Uh, it's, it's one very narrow version of it. But um, particular powerful commentators were very successful then in self-described conservative circles in making this a kind of, uh, as I understand it, leading argument to assess the state of the culture. American society is in peril. Uh, because of these expansions of rights to LGBTQ individuals and, and the legalization of gay marriage and so forth. And so if you look at a lot of the rhetoric about college campuses now, There are very striking parallels. It's the idea that this orthodoxy has taken over college campuses and quote unquote traditional conservative viewpoints are no longer welcomed and that these radical ideas have overtaken them. And we're in an apocalypse sort of moment. We're in a moment of crisis and threat to the greater state of U.S. society. And as I say in the book, um, the structure of the argument, and the basic terminology essentially stays the same. It's just that you get the references to um, certain conservative Christian values and orientations taken out, and now it's re- replaced by references to university campuses. So I think it's just as, as a broad summation that I think it's just important to say these are not spontaneous arguments about university campuses. Um, they're not um, they're not disconnected from other movements in society. It's part of a much broader push to say, Uh, That certain very powerful groups are skeptical about the full extent of a multicultural, truly inclusive democracy in all of these spaces, that they're okay with it up to a certain point, but that when there seems to be a threat to the hegemony of a very ardently conservative version of Western culture, that's where democracy ends and that that needs to be protected. And as i say that i'm not trying to be critical here in conversation with you i think that's just merely a description of what this position is Uh, and now there in my argument the language of campus misinformation has strong echoes of that kind of perspective now just applied to sort of think about uh, creating a culture war mentality on university and college campuses, when by and large students and faculty are just trying to teach and learn and do their research well, independent of that culture war.
2: The last chapter offers a kind of prescription for moving on from campus misinformation. Can you summarize some of your ideas for combating the misperceptions that are currently shaping how the public understands these institutions of higher education.
1: Sure, and this is a, you referred to the idea that I call this chapter on on First Amendment hardball a hinge, from that standpoint on, I try and emphasize sort of um, ways that people at large can and should, I think, think critically about this discourse about college campuses and do things that, whether for themselves or in conversation with others, are, are proactive about having a healthier quality of public debate. So a few of the things I recommend that uh, topmost come to mind is, is one, is that I think it's important to have a historic, a good functional historical understanding of um, colleges and universities in US history, particularly from the late 20th century forward. Um, The idea that colleges and universities are restrictive of all kinds of social and political viewpoints now, That kind of ignores the broader context here in the era of desegregation forward, which is, I think, again, continuing work, where the dominant trend is that colleges and universities have become more inclusive of many different kinds of free speech, more supportive of many kinds of uh, academic freedom by law, by court rulings and so forth, and what the Constitution is understood to have said. Sometimes, yes, we absolutely on a case by case basis, these are continuing issues. We should always be ardently concerned about the state of free speech and um, academic freedom on college campuses. But proportionality, I think, is useful to have an evidence based quality of public discourse to kind of think about some of the uh, hyper-partisan or extremist rhetoric about college campuses today and then compare those to things that were happening in the era of desegregation when you had tens of thousands of people in some universities rioting because just one uh, black person was officially enrolled. Think about kind of the difference there and the proportionality issues with proportionality of some of these claims. Um, And so I try and advocate, let's think about these institutions from a historical perspective and use that as an important resource. And then also uh, I say, let's kind of have an evidence-based perspective from multiple kinds of empirical resources. The viewpoint diversity conversation, a lot of this rhetoric leans, as I mentioned on what I think is a is a histor- is a very, actually a narrow band of data, statistical information, survey research, and so forth, often produced by organizations that are already invested in creating a deeply cynical, if not negative, view of higher education. And I think something that should be elevated in the public conversation is that. Hundreds, thousands of faculty and students routinely every day are doing things proactively in different committees, student organizations, faculty organizations to protect the state of open climates, free exchange of information, ideas, and arguments uh, in universities. And so those voices should be considered equally meritorious, uh, equally sources of valuable information to say survey research based on just a few dozen students online and some um, sort of methodology that has a lot of holes in it and so forth. We need to have public debate based on all those different perspectives. And then third is that I think it's really unfortunate the ways in which students are stereotyped in these discourses and kind of written off. Um, That doesn't seem like it's a good thing for raising a generation of kind of new citizens and leaders to take important positions of responsibility. And in fact, one message I try and close off uh, the book with is that undergraduate students are taking tremendous responsibility for themselves, for their education, and for other parts of society. If we look at the actual statistics, uh, student populations now include huge numbers of people who are already working, contributing to the economy while trying to sustain a heavy academic load. Sometimes they're working two or three kinds of jobs. A lot of them are heavy labor. Um, Sometimes they're uh, students returning after being in the workplace for a while to come back and get additional degrees. Many of those students are paying their way. They're burdened by enormously high student debt, unfairly high student debt. Uh, They're caring for families and so forth, uh, and even many of them while suffering from health issues, from food and economic insecurity. Uh, On my campus, I know on a lot of other campuses, we literally have food pantries uh, for certain kinds of students or members of the community. So describing students in these hyper-entitled, coddled, pathologically irrational ways is just inaccurate. Um, we might find certain behaviors we'd like on college campuses, but there's a lot to admire uh, and emulate in terms of how many of these students are trying to take responsibility for themselves, for their education, and other parts of society. And I hope we can sort of have a quality of public discourse that builds capacities for recognizing those goods of higher education as an antidote to all these negative attacks.
2: Finally, before I let you go this afternoon, I'd like to ask, what are you working on next? Oh, well, thanks. Um,
1: I'm trying. I I don't have any firm ideas yet, but I think there's a lot more to say about um, some of the international connections with some of these ideas Um, as I was. Updating the the manuscript, Uh, I've had it for a while, but I needed to update it for the degree to which in the last couple of years there's been all this state censorship of academic freedom and certain types of teaching, not only in universities, but I I try to make the point in the book, um, as you might remember, that this was sort of a testing ground for arguments about public education in general to ban certain sorts of ideas and create negative hostile opinions about education, even in K through 12 circles. Um, there's a lot to say. I, I'm not sure what shape this would take, but I, I want to keep looking at the connections between, as I mentioned, places in Hungary, Poland, in Russia and so forth. Um, there's a lot of a broad cross uh, talk here among extremist groups and groups of certain groups um, political orientations. A lot of what's being said, it's striking about with themes of sort of trigger warnings and safe spaces and cancel culture, that sort of just purely derisive, empirically suspect, deeply cynical vocabulary about students and faculty and universities here in the U.S. It's not totally homegrown. A lot of political figures and authoritarian, if not authoritarian, sympathetic figures in places like Hungary, Poland, um, Russia, obviously, use similar sorts of arguments and vocabulary. And I think these ideas are traveling. And uh, I'd like to flesh out some of those connections too.